Rusty Quill presents. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's story is brought to you by Manscaped. Use code WESTSIDE at manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping. Westside Fairy Tales is a dark fiction and horror podcast. The story you are about to hear is violent and disturbing. Exercise discretion before listening. Previously on Scars in Time. Gun Cotton is not shaping up to be the restful, recharging change Ash had expected it to be. Having witnessed the suicide of a stranger, the man, in fact, who sold them their new house, Ash does her best to hold it together. But a new danger reveals itself in the form of Bobby Chatterley, the mayor and major stakeholder of Gun Cotton. He ends his first meeting with Ash by invading one of her delusions, taking a monstrous form and threatening her. Now Ash must contend with his enigmatic warnings, her own delusions, and the difficulties of setting up a new, badly kept old house. Without further ado, Scars in Time, Chapter 6 The House There is a surprising amount of furniture in here, Darcy said, walking through the house with her fingers tangled behind her back. The place was silent enough I could hear the soft popping of tendon and cartilage in her shoulders. She finished that stretch and bent over to touch the red cloth seat of the massive couch set in the near middle of the sitting room. She grimaced. It just feels filthy, she said, smacking the cushion. A fat cloud of brown dust puffed into the air and lingered there. I had a sudden vision of a man smoking a pipe in just that spot, but it faded before it could take hold. I looked around, shivering, and then went about pulling all the window curtains aside. The room looked less Dracula and more bygone disaster with a strong helping of light. There were dust and cobwebs everywhere, of course even a few ragged little mouse holes in the walls, 
But more than that, the place was still full of other people's stuff. Much of it fairly old, in fact, and still set out as though they'd all planned to return after a trip out and simply hadn't come back. I picked up a teacup sitting beside one of the red upholstered high-backed chairs opposite the couch. Even decades later, you could see the crusted rim of grime where dust had settled over a slowly evaporating drink. I turned it over and watched a gray dust ball fall to the floor. God, I said, how much did we even pay for this place? Twenty thousand dollars, Darcy replied, looking around the ceiling. I followed her gaze to the ornate if filthy, plaster tiles there. Worth every penny, I guess. I'm going to need a gas mask to dust that, I said. One of those hazmat suits you see in the movies. A space suit, maybe. We're going to hire specialists to do most of that, Darcy replied. There's a few local restoration companies that do this sort of work. They're going to come and vacuum? I asked. She rolled her eyes. They're going to restore the house and upgrade all the infrastructure, she said. Just modernize it so it doesn't burn down from some rat-eaten wiring. I don't want the place to get too expensive to maintain or, really, to sell if we ever decide to. She wasn't talking to me anymore but to herself or the house. A combination of the two, really. Her hands were on her hips as I followed her to the connecting hallway behind the central staircase. The central staircase, I should add, wasn't all that central. It sort of curved around the large, open foyer by the front door to the second floor balcony. Behind it, going from the door, was a multi-story, hearth-style fireplace with a second spot for firewood on the second floor. There were more fireplaces scattered throughout the house as well, basically in every room though many of them had been bricked up or otherwise closed during a spate of modernization in the 40s or 50s, maybe. We passed the hearth on our little tour, opening doors as we went and discovering the downstairs restroom and a closet full of moth-eaten blankets and pillows. There were several flat boxes as well, though they were all too dusty to bother touching, at least just yet. Past the hearth and the central hall, at what we'll call the northeast end of the house, was the kitchen. It was larger than our kitchen back in Colorado, but not by too much. Though it was fairly apparent, nobody ever actually ate in the space. The large central table was a heavy block of wood with shelving underneath it, clearly used for preparing meals. Wow, Darcy said pulling open the doors of a heavy cast-iron block on the side of the kitchen. It took me a few seconds to realize it was some kind of stove. How the hell are we going to get rid of that? I asked. The thing probably weighed half a ton. Darcy looked at me like my eyes were falling out of my head. We're not getting rid of it. She snapped. Then she sighed and shook her head, knocking the door she'd opened shut with her knee. Sorry, babe. She pointed at the thing. This is an AGA stove. They last forever, and honestly, the price of the house would be worth just owning this thing. I'll mention that between us. Darcy was the cook. 
The greatest thing I'd accomplished with a kitchen utensil in my life was hitting a boy in the face with a cast iron skillet because he wouldn't stop chasing me. Darcy could poach eggs, which, she once assured me with a wink, is quite difficult. Well, I guess we own it, I said. What's so great about it? She looked down at the thing and shrugged. It takes kind of a long time to get hot, but it stays hot for a while, she said. I just looked at her. And you can have the three cooking doors be different temperatures, so one thing can keep meals warm while another cooks them. Neat, I said, trying not to chuckle. Probably worth the price of the house. She sighed and looked around the rest of the kitchen. It's actually very cool, she said. Maybe even the price of fixing it up, I continued. I was grinning at her now. She shook her head and left, and I followed. Beside the kitchen was the dining room, which was far less interesting than all the other rooms we'd seen. It was also the first room that had any sort of coverings on the furniture. A series of filthy white drop cloths lay over the large table and the dozen odd chairs surrounding it. The table itself was long and oblong, though not too ovoid as to keep two people from sitting at the head and foot. Around it were a smattering of smaller serving tables and a remarkably intact china cabinet that I found far more impressive than Darcy's slow stove. I touched the glass lightly, but even that small bit of contact caused an unnerving rattle on the shelves. Yeesh, I muttered to myself. Fine. What? Darcy asked. Nothing, I said, following her out of the dining room and back into the foyer. We'd completed our tour of the U-shaped first floor. I was talking to the plates in the china cabinet. She gave me a look I couldn't quite decipher, decided on something, and then continued toward the stairs without saying anything. We took the curving, central staircase to the second floor balcony. While the loss of so much floor space might seem egregious, it made the second floor somehow feel much lighter and more open than the first, which was separated by the walls that supported the staircases and the balcony. Here, the rooms opened directly onto a walkway, save for the doors to the master bedroom, which were hidden by the wall encasing the third floor stairwell. We started with the first door on the left, which led to a bathroom with wonderful tile and terrible wallpaper. I looked into the mirror there and touched my face, while Darcy laid on the ground and shined her phone's flashlight into the shadows beneath the cast iron claw foot tub in the corner. It was the first time I'd really looked at myself since waking up that morning. For some reason, this closeness to my dust-muddled reflection reminded me of the vision of my own dead corpse in the bathroom stall. The second floor's electric light was terribly inconstant, even more so than the first floor's. It pulsed on and off at irregular intervals through the few filthy bulbs that still worked. Most of them had burst or broken at some point, littering the floors with glass. But in the bathroom, the bulb was still whole enough to compete against the sun with its faint, flickering light. I noticed something odd on my face. A shadow by my lip. On my lip, really. 
what looked like an ink stain spreading in dots up toward my nose and cheekbone. I rubbed at it, but it didn't move, didn't vanish. I couldn't feel anything but my own smooth skin and a few misbehaving mustache hairs I hadn't plucked away over my lip, but I could see it through the grime on the mirror. I swiped a handful of brown gunk off the glass to see better. The black spot was gone. I shook my head and turned to ask Darcy if she saw anything on my face. She had somehow gotten herself nearly halfway under the tub. Her legs were moving in a way I didn't like. I realized I couldn't hear her making any noise but the soft taps of her shoes on the tile. Darcy? I asked. She wasn't one to play games and try to scare me. Her body hitched and slid deeper into the shadows beneath the tub. The sides of her feet left drag lines in the dust on the ground. Darcy! It was more of a harsh whisper than a yell. I watched my wife's jeans disappear further, down to the knee. I cleared my throat and tried to say her name again. Instead, I coughed and a lump of something shot into my mouth. I turned and spat it out, nearly vomiting from the taste. Darcy! Darcy! I said, wiping something off my chin. It was a smear of black like charcoal paste and water. Jesus! I shook my head and dropped to my knees, grabbing Darcy's ankles. Her body was almost completely beneath the tub, So far, she'd have to be either laying sideways with her legs at an impossible angle to fit, or somehow be going through the wall. I couldn't get my head low enough to see while still holding on to her legs. I wrapped them in both hands, and was trying desperately to pull her back. Darcy! I all but yelled through gritted teeth. What? She asked from behind me. I turned to see her standing only slightly confused, behind me. I felt the cloth on the legs I was holding rip through my hands violently. The little bit of grip I managed to maintain pulled the side of my head against the bathtub and I hissed. My hands felt at once very cold, then very, very hot. I held them up and for a second I was in the snow again thirty years earlier. My arm looked like burger all down the right side, and I could feel the cold much worse than before I'd leaned back to kick Mike's handlebars. My shirt was in tatters, barely covering my chest. Though I couldn't really remember trying to stop my skid down the hill, I saw that my hands were skinned badly and weeping blood up through dozens of spots in my palms. At the time, I had looked up and seen him, the fat man with the umbrella smiling at me with his mushy Picasso face. This time I only saw Darcy. She rushed forward and grabbed my hands. Jesus, Ash, she said. They weren't as bad as after that slide down the mountainside road by my childhood home, but I was bleeding a bit. What did you do? I thought about lying, but I honestly couldn't come up with anything. I I saw you getting dragged beneath the bathtub. I said. Why? What? Darcy asked. Didn't you get underneath the bathtub to check it? I asked. 
just for a second, Darcy said. I could see that slow, glassy slide into her professional self. Then, then I left you here by the sink. You were dazing off and looking into the mirror. She took a breath. You saw me under the bathtub? Yes, I said. You were getting dragged underneath and I tried to pull you out and, well, I held up my hands. She turned them so they were facing up to the ceiling. Stay like that for a second, okay? She asked. I nodded and obediently stood like a statue awaiting some offering while she ducked down by the tub. I imagined for a long, horrified second that she would get dragged under. But she stood back up a few seconds later. She huffed a bit, having to use her knee like a cane. Well, let's put the tour on hold for a second, okay? She asked. I think you had a... One of your visions and accidentally scraped yourself on the bottom of that tub. The enamel on the bottom is pretty corroded, so if you pushed hard enough... She ran a hand through her hair. Jesus, Ash. You could have lost a finger if you'd pushed any harder. We're going to have to clean those abrasions right now. I didn't bother arguing with her that the marks on my hands made no goddamn sense with the explanation she gave me. Mostly because it would have made me sound crazier. Not that I wasn't already crazy, mind you. But when you're a touch ill and you don't immediately do what the doctors say, they start actually getting worried. So I let her take me downstairs and clean my wounds with peroxide from the little red doctor's bag. Then she bound me with some light bandages. Somebody knocked on the front door. I was sitting in one of the high-backed red chairs with my hands resting palms up in my lap. Darcy squeezed my shoulder, said something like, wait here a second, and then answered the door. Well, how can I help you? She asked, and I could immediately tell she was talking to a child. Darcy infantilized anything and anybody under the age of around 16, or she talked to them like they were patients. Her parents and I were the notable exceptions. She loved me, and she didn't talk to her parents at all. I could only hear snippets of Darcy's conversation, but it was clear the child in question was one of Bobby's kids from the orphanage. I remembered him saying he'd send over a kid with the documents we had to sign, and I figured that was what was happening. A man entered the room carrying a lantern. I sucked in a nervous breath even though I knew I was seeing things. I could see Darcy speaking with the child outside still. Or, rather, I could see Darcy speaking to somebody who wasn't quite tall enough to be seen over the bottom of the window. The man with the lantern came up to the couch and looked at me. I knew who he was, though his appearance was much different. The doctor with the dirty glasses. His glasses were perfectly clear now, and I could see that his eyes were a fairly common shade of brown behind the lenses. His face was drawn and tired, thin and long. He was also considerably shorter than in my previous encounters, though still quite tall for a man. He looked directly at me. 
Excuse me, but could you scoot to the side of the couch, please? He asked. Who are you talking to? A nervous woman asked. I looked in the direction of the voice and saw the shape of a woman standing in the shadows by the fireplace set into the wall. Her face remained in shadows too deep for me to parse, made all the worse by the doctor's brilliant lantern. The fireplace clicked its way through a stack of mostly eaten logs, showing the woman's long dress as being either red or rust brown. The doctor nodded his head to the right and this time I obeyed feeling almost foolish for doing so, but he thanked me when I did. A second later, a young boy, eight at the most, plopped down on the cushions at the far edge of the couch. He looked on the verge of death. His pale skin and the bruise-colored flesh around his eyes looked all the worse for the proper little tweed suit he wore. The doctor asked him to open his mouth, and he did. The doctor then knelt and stared into the boy's mouth, moving his chin this way and that before standing. He placed a hand on the boy's shoulder and smiled, but said nothing. Might I speak with you in the other room? He asked the woman. I could see the hesitation in her posture when he took her by the elbow, a slight hitching of the shoulders. The boy looked at me, through me, really, and then pulled his feet up onto the couch so he could sit cross-legged. He rubbed his palms on the fabric over his knees, closing his eyes and shaking. I realized he was trying to hold his breath. Then he began coughing. The sound was heartbreaking. It cut to the core of me, to the bone. I knew the child was dying from the sound of it. Not just wet and rattling. This was a sound almost like ripping. It made me think of someone hyperventilating into a wet paper bag with a hole in it. Hey there, came a voice from beside the front door. Another child. I almost thought the real child from outside had come in for some reason. When I looked, I saw her. The same little blonde girl from the bar bathroom. Her eyes were sad and deeply, impossibly blue. Indigo. As I'd said. Hi, the boy said. His voice was laced with pain. He pulled a small handkerchief out of his suit jacket and began another spate of coughing with that over his mouth. Even in the dim firelight, I could see dried blood dotting the fabric like a handful of rusty coins. News circles joined them before he returned the cloth to his pocket, shining and scarlet. The girl sat next to him and he hopped away quickly. No, he hissed loudly. You can't sit next to me. Why are you afraid of girls? She asked, coquettish despite her apparent age. He narrowed his eyes at her and pursed his lips. No, I'm not, he said. You just can't be near me. You'll get sick too. Especially when I'm coughing. He scooted away from her a bit further. She followed him, holding him in place with the lightest touch of her fingers on the back of his hand. Something like lightning struck in my mind at that instant and I heard a sound that would become very familiar in just a week or so. The rush of typewriter keys. 
Jonathan hated not being called John because he thought his full name sounded odd and nasally. Perhaps that was because his sister always said it out loud with her nose pinched between her fingers when she wanted to bother him. Now he hated it because sick kids were always called by their full names. Not just sick kids, really, but ill children. Children like him. Children who adults sometimes spoke to as adults because they didn't have a lot of time left. Because they were dying. He hated that name because that's what Shelley called him. Shelley with her little porcelain dolls and her bad habit of getting her Sunday dress caught on things. Shelley, his big sister who would make fun of him all the time but said that nobody else could do that because it was her privilege. That he had to tell if anybody else ever picked on him because she'd take care of that. Quick, fast, and in a gosh darn hurry. She'd actually said God damned, like the way adults did, and said it real loud. But he didn't even like thinking it, so he didn't. Back then, only Shelley had ever called him Jonathan, pinching her nose and crossing her eyes and chasing him around until he cried for her to stop. Then she'd tackle him and tickle him and they'd end up laughing or she'd make him come and have high tea with her like a proper English lady. One time she'd even tackled a girl at their little school in the hills for pushing him. But she hadn't tickled that girl, no. Shelley had pinched her neck and face and arms until the girl had cried and promised that she'd mind her manners from then on. Then Shelley had gotten sick. And nobody had called him Jonathan anymore. Nobody really even talked to him much at all, because they had to spend all their time fussing over Shelley. And they started calling her Michelle instead of Shelley, which they both hated. She told him so. She also told him that she would be back at school soon, and that he better be practicing running because she'd be up and chasing him any minute. She'd even hopped out of her bed once making big monster claws and growling so suddenly that John had screamed and dropped a cup of water on the ground. Shelley had tried to help clean it up, but she'd started coughing, and he'd had to help her back into bed. Then she'd turned away from him and coughed some more, and, because he was a good brother, he pretended she wasn't crying like she was. A few weeks after that, John's mother had come into his room with a look on her face he'd never seen. She didn't seem to see him. She was looking up and away at something the way people did at church. But she took his hand all the same and led him down the hall to see Shelley. She was a wet, sweaty mess. But he told her she looked pretty. She had one of her favorite dresses on, though not her favorite favorite. She smiled at him her eyes seemed distant like his mother's. She could hardly stop coughing, even though the coughs were weak and barely moved her chest. Mom says we have to say goodbye to each other, Shelley said. She reached out her hand and took his. Then she smiled and pinched her nose. So, goodbye, Jonathan. He began to cry and crushed her hand in his. Then his mother began to lead him away, but he pulled back and turned to his sister. Her eyes were deep and sad. He pinched his nose with his fingers. So long, Michelle. 
he said. Her name sounded like Majel when he did it. She laughed and wiggled her fingers at him, and he let his mother take him back to bed. The next day, she was gone. And a few weeks later, everybody started calling him Jonathan. I took a deep breath and felt myself slipping back down into some semblance of reality, even though I was still in that odd superimposition of past and present. Or, at least what I thought was the past and present. The little blonde girl still had her hand on the boys. He was looking at her fingers intently. You're dying, she said. Even though they don't ever say it, You know that you're dying, right? He nodded. Tears spilled from his eyes and he rubbed them away with the hand hers wasn't touching. What if it was easier? If what was easier? He asked, staring at his knees. Dying, she said. He looked at her. She smiled. Remember how bad it was for Shelly? She couldn't play or run. Stop, he whispered. She couldn't even have tea with you or chase you down and tickle you, the girl said. He glared at her. Stop it, he said. I don't know you. The girl grabbed his shoulders. Her eyes were wide, almost feverish. But you do, Jonathan, you do, she said. Even though I was just an observer, I could feel myself being drawn into those eyes. They were like a bottomless well, a hole eating the sides of its own boundaries. You're the boy that hates his long little name and misses his sister, who hates these trips to the doctor and all those sad-looking grown-ups. She leaned in close enough to kiss his ear and whispered, You're the boy who hates the taste of blood in his mouth. Her eyes flicked to me, but only for a moment. Get away from me, the boy said, moving his face back from her. You'll get sick. I can't get sick, the girl said. I don't ever won't ever get sick. He looked at her and she smiled, raising her hands to the house around her. After all, I get to live in the doctor's house, don't I? I know things, don't I? I can fix it so it won't hurt. Fix it? The boy mumbled. There was no fight in him. How... With this, the girl said, holding up a glass and copper syringe, the kind with two big rings for the fingers. The fluid in the glass could have been water for all anybody knew. The boy looked at it with a broken sort of hope. What is it? 
he asked. Medicine, she replied, holding the syringe in her hands before him. It reminded me of how Darcy had made me keep my hands after I'd hurt them upstairs. Medicine, he repeated. The strongest, she said. Her voice was soft. Okay, he said, then softer. What do I need to do? Just hold still, she said, slipping off the couch and taking his arm by the elbow. She lined the needle up without moving the shirt or jacket sleeves out of the way. Shouldn't I take off my jacket? At least, he asked. She said nothing, her little pink tongue flicking out to lick at the corner of her lip while she pressed the needle forward. The boy hissed and then began to cry. It hurts. She pressed it deeper still, settling her thumb on the plunger. I heard the bones in her little child's hand crunching and popping to allow for the too large size of the instrument. It hurts. But you want it to stop hurting, right? She asked, raising her eyes from the syringe to the boy. His body had a frightened stiffness to it, like any slight movement might somehow unsettle the massive needle disappearing into his sleeve. She leaned closer. It's a trade. I'll make it stop hurting, but you have to ask for it. He nodded. Say it out loud, she said. Her voice was a woman's voice. I want it to stop hurting, he said dropping his chin to his chest. Then she pushed the plunger and the boy's face scrunched, pinched, and then went slack. His body convulsed lightly as she pulled the needle free and slowly laid him on his side on the couch. His eyes rolled up in his head and he began to foam at the mouth. The girl watched him for a while and then looked at me when the worst of it had subsided. Then she smiled tossed the syringe into the fire and left. The vision collapsed on itself like smoke being blown out of a room. Darcy followed its departure by walking into the room with a disbelieving smile on her face. My hands were shaking, but I found I could push the smile I needed up where it belonged. You won't believe this, she said, reaching out to me. I took her hand and hoped she couldn't feel the tremors. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, my name is Tyler Bell and I'm the host of the West Side Fairy Tales. For better or worse, this operation is basically a one-man show. I do all the writing, reading, editing, music, and the various other production aspects. Yui Breedlove does all the wonderful episode art you see online. If you're enjoying this episode, please consider compensating us for the experience. Anything, even just a dollar lets us know that you believe the West Side Fairy Tales is content you appreciate. You can donate to our efforts directly through the PayPal link on our website, westsidefairytales.com, or by pledging to support us on Patreon. For just a dollar there, you'll get access to these episodes without ads like this, and for $5 or more, you get access to members-only content, including fully produced ebooks of the episodes and behind-the-story lore episodes. And, at $10 or more, We'll start sending you special merch packs and a whole lot of other stuff. The West Side Fairy Tales is a one-of-a-kind production, and we can't thank you enough for just taking the chance to give us a listen. But odd, off-the-wall, incredibly unique productions like this are self-funded, and without the generous support of listeners like you, we wouldn't be able to stay on the air. So, please consider keeping great horror independent and supporting the West Side Fairy Tales today. Thank you, and, as always, stay safe out there. Now, back to our program already in progress. I was somewhat taken aback by the curiosity waiting for me outside, though it was a drop in the bucket compared to the earlier visions. Four children all of them in their early teens or younger, were standing beside a rumbling green pickup truck driven by a tall, brown-skinned man of indeterminate age. His face was smooth enough for thirty, but his eyes had an awful depth to them, a deep sadness. The kids were offloading a mattress, the oldest-looking of them barking orders like a soldier. A few seconds later, the four were excusing themselves and going inside my house with a massive hunk of white bedding. I looked at Darcy, who was going through a series of documents on a clipboard and signing by pieces of yellow tape. What the hell is that? I asked. A new mattress, apparently, she said. She handed me the clipboard and a pen, holding up a few tight white bundles wrapped in cardboard. And these are the bed sheets. Those are pillows. She pointed to a small, poofy trash bag in the back of the pickup truck. You need to sign by all the yellow pieces of tape. 
Where did that come from? I asked. A housewarming present, apparently, Darcy said. From our beloved new mayor. She chuckled. I told this gentleman here, that's Calvin, who manages the department store downtown, apparently, that it was nice, but we'd manage. What did he say? I asked. That it was ours, and he'd have the kids dump it here if we didn't take it, she said. I don't think he was kidding, either. She laughed. I was most of the way through signing the papers. The oldest of those kids, the one barking orders, his name's Sean, and this renegade band belongs to him, apparently. He brought those and told me where to sign like some sort of real estate agent. Do they know where to take that thing? I asked. Yeah, she said. The master bedroom's on the second floor, or so Bobby told them. They know where to go. Done. The kid in question, Sean, said. He nodded at both of us, his eyes the sort of blank you usually see on career police officers. You ladies need anything else done around here? Mr. Chatterley paid us up for the mattress and signing them things there, but we can do a lot else. He looked at both of us. I opened my mouth and said nothing, but Darcy seemed to like the kid. He had gray eyes and pale brown hair that made him seem almost colorless. And his skin wasn't pale so much as copper with all the shine brushed out of it. He seemed worn. What else can you do? She asked. He smiled like a salesman, but warmly enough. Off the bat, I can tell you my crew doesn't do windows, he said. I almost laughed when he said crew, but he was so earnest I didn't want to offend him. What I mean by that is we don't do maid-type cleaning. What we will do is yard work, simple fix-it stuff, painting, fetching of all sorts, and we'll deliver anything that's legal and gets dropped off inside the valley. For more than you're probably willing to pay, we'll go to Targrady or Legree too, even down to Blunt. But if you've got a car, you should probably just do it yourself. That's a very specific list, I said. A girl stepped up, her hair a series of dangling, beaded braids. They clicked lightly with every move she made. We're very specific people, ma'am, she said. But it's not inclusive. It's not, Sean agreed. He looked at me for a second and then turned his head side to side looking for someone. He settled on a third kid, bigger but younger, who was running his fingers back and forth over the stone porch railing. Thomas. The kid jumped and looked around. Then he put on a serious expression and pulled a business card from the pocket of the orange bubble vest he was wearing. He handed it to Darcy. We'll always take a consultation, he said. His words less practiced than the other's pitching had been. Just let us, uh, just call us our, our numbers on the card. He reached forward to point out the number. It was the only thing on the card. And Darcy, smiling, held it out to him. Sean slapped Thomas's wrist and smiled tightly. They know where the number is on the card, Tom, he said. Then he turned to us. If you ladies need anything, 
you just let us know. He and the others nodded to us. The third boy, never introduced, was short and dark-skinned, with very wide eyes and a constant smile. He gave us a very serious thumbs up, but began skipping once he was off the porch. The lot of them followed Sean to the truck, where he doled out a dozen or so green bills from a roll in his pocket and handed them to the driver, the man named Calvin I hadn't met yet. Sean took the plastic sack of pillows from the truck bed and handed them to the little dark-skinned kid. He pointed at us and the kid sprinted up to the porch, barely able to see over the top of the bag. He dropped them off, smiled, and stretched his hand out to Darcy and then me. My name's Albert, he said in a low voice. They never introduced me because I'm socially awkward, but I don't think I am. I just really like to meet new people and talk to them. It's fun. Are you a doctor? Sean said you'd steal all my blood and pull out my lungs if I took too long in your house or if I touched anything. He turned to me. And he said you're a lesbian. We're technically both lesbians. I said flatly. Darcy tried to keep from laughing. The boy stared at me, waiting for more information. But Sean is correct. I am more lesbian than Darcy here. The boy's eyes widened with the depth of this new and sudden revelation. Albert! Sean yelled. All three of us looked at him. Then Albert shouted bye at us and darted off the porch, and we watched a lot of them go. I half expected to see a second young girl and a fourth boy in their midst, both of them dressed in inappropriately old clothing, but nothing like that happened. Just the children and the ever-present fog of old town. Then only the fog when they had gone. You are not more lesbian than me, Darcy said while we watched the kids go. I am not, I agreed. You have lied to a child, she added. I have, I said. Want to help me make our new bed? Then I'll help you unmake it, she said winking at me, which she almost never did. It was so ridiculous I couldn't help but laugh, which might have saved the whole day. Hey there, Westsiders. Enjoying the program? Then hop on Twitter, Reddit, or your podcast app and let everybody know how great the West Side Fairy Tales is. Taking a few seconds to rate us, review us, or share our latest episode and your thoughts on it helps get fresh ears on our stories and lets us rise up from the dark and sweltering pits of the sub-top 100 rankings. I know you folks appreciate a good summoning, so why not bring this eldritch and unseen thing to the unwedding masses? Utter our black name before your friends, family, and co-workers, and then tag us so we can retweet or share it. We're at WS Fairy Tales on Twitter and Westside Fairy Tales on Facebook and Instagram. Click link tree in the episode description for a comprehensive list of our social media connections. You can also send us an email at westsidefairytales at gmail.com. If your inner circle of living people are too undeserving of the west side fairy tales you can join our little cult the west side fairy tales horror and lit club on facebook 
We talk about the episodes, books we've been reading, horror news, and all sorts of stuff, so pop on by. Thanks again for listening to the West Side Fairy Tales, and don't forget to give us a review on your favorite podcasting app after this episode. Now, back to our program, already in progress. The master bedroom was something in the ballpark of ridiculous. We'd always lived slightly nicer than most Americans. It's just a fact of the lives we'd built for ourselves. But this was an ostentatiousness I'd only seen in museums. The bed frame, a permanent fixture of the room, was a three-tiered sort of ziggurat with two posts rising from the footboard and melding perfectly with the ceiling. Bars for bed curtains ran between those two posts and then vanished seamlessly into the bas-relief headboard, which depicted a caduceus and a series of Grecian figures in various states of distress and healing. At the center of them stood a single man in robes, bearing a scroll, from whom a regenerative light shone over the assembled. I knelt on our new mattress and ran my fingers over it. Are we even allowed to sleep here? I asked. This looks like it belongs in a museum. Darcy laughed and tossed the sheets at me. I glared at her. Of course, she said. All of this belongs to us now, for better or worse. Darcy flicked a hand around the room and I followed her fingers. The other furniture was made of the same odd, rooted-in-place style as the bed. It was more obvious than the room's few chairs, which were set at odd angles by the dresser and the vanity. Frozen in place like that, they'd only ever be moderately useful, and almost constantly in the way. I touched the back of one of them as Darcy splayed out over the sheets with her face buried in the pillows. I may as well have been pushing on the trunk of a tree. I turned to comment on the odd furniture to Darcy, but she was sleeping by the time I turned around. I tossed the flat sheet over her and then the blanket, walking around the room one last time and poking at this or that before finally going to the window. He'd looked out onto the side yard, though you could see some of the lights in town through the canopy of grey. I turned the handle to open the window, wanting to feel the chill October air, but the frame held fast. It seemed as stuck as everything else in the house. So I sighed, returned the handle to its appropriate place, and went to bed. I woke in our kitchen, moonlight spilling through the window and shining with dull intent on the knife in my hand. Broad-bladed and sharp, my mind was of two pieces trying to remember where I'd found it. On one hand, I'd never seen it before. I knew that intrinsically, even though I couldn't tell one knife from another unless they were sitting right in front of me. On the other hand, I could remember maybe a thousand moments of cutting vegetables and meat, of preparing meals for years with the thing. That's how I knew it was sharp. That's why the handle felt so familiar in my hand. I was going to kill somebody with this thing. I needed to kill him before I lost myself again or at least kill myself. I needed to be free. I stumbled to the sink, eminently clean as I always left it, and held my wrist out over the drain. Even now, I was determined not to make a mess. 
Because I knew if I failed, he'd leave it there for me to clean up, just like he always did. I felt the crisp snatch of the blade finding its place on my skin, moving opposite the cutting direction as something. Something plucked and pulled at my resolve. I could feel it in my arm, holding my muscles tight in a panicked, almost familiar way. I could almost hear her, and it was a her, begging me in my own voice not to do it. She sounded confused and terrified, but not wholly there, like the voice of a nightmare. What are you doing, Ash? He said behind me. Stay away, Mike. I whispered, begging the specter to release her hold on me before the true irons were clasped back on. Then it was too late. His hand was on my cheek, moving down my neck and around my throat. His fingers, thick and masculine, crushed me gently, and I wept for just a second before the knife dropped harmlessly into the sink. The noise was tremendous, but I could barely hear it. The honey-sweet feel of his infection was inside me again, thick and deleterious. And I was sliding away, away, barely myself again, or sadly, as much of myself as I had been for years, decades. Daddy? Our daughter asked from the entrance to the kitchen. I could feel him turning and, and turning moving me around and adjusting his grip to a more casual, one-armed hug that encircled my shoulders. The girl in the doorway was about ten or so years old, with messy blonde hair and deep purple eyes. Yes, baby, Mike asked. His infection was all the way inside me again, and what was left of my mind was distilled to a thin paste at the back of my skull. My sense of agency and self now no bigger than this mental visitor who'd stayed my near suicide. This new woman in my brain seemed as much afraid of my husband as of my daughter, whom she seemed to recognize as someone else. I don't have a daughter, she said. Is mommy okay? My daughter asked. Well, I do, I said to her in my mind. My mouth would never move on its own if Mike didn't want it to. He'd gotten sick of me talking the way a boy gets bored of magic tricks after a certain age. It just didn't amuse him anymore. He led me to my daughter and told me to let her know everything was okay. Everything's okay, baby girl, I said. She wrapped her arms around my neck and the feeling was more intense than Mike's simple, magical poison. It was chemical brain deep and swirling. The new passenger in my head was sickened by it. Let's go tuck Coraline back into bed, okay? Mike said, kissing my forehead and wrapping both of us in his arms. I was dull, dead. The passenger in my head was gone, and for some reason that made me feel terribly alone. Resigning myself again, Taking my fate on the chin for the thousandth time in the last thirty years, I kissed Mike on the cheek and let him lead me upstairs. I shot awake in my new bed, hopping clear out of the sheets and nearly breaking my ankle, stumbling down the ridiculous stairs that made up the bed frame. 
I ran my hand through the netting of white hair and scars on the back of my head and twined my fingers into it. Then I twisted, letting the simple, perfect pain ground me. I'd killed him. Mike was dead. Mike could never hurt me. Still, the nightmare I'd slipped into lingered in my mouth like acid. My head snapped toward the lump of a sleeping figure in the bed opposite me, softly snoring. I crawled onto the mattress slowly, not knowing what I would do if the wrong person were there, if it were anybody but Darcy. The shadow of the head was dark. I climbed closer. Then my hand was around the person's face and turning the chin to where I could see. Even in the soft moonlight, reflecting silver off the gray leaves, I could see it was Darcy's plump, aging face. I kissed her softly on lips and she stirred slightly, but remained asleep. Satisfied, I twisted back into the sheets with my eyes closed, trying to fall asleep as the soft clatter of rain beginning to fall against the roof echoed through the house. Or, at least, what I believed to be the clatter of rain. Coming up on Scars in Time. Ash and Darcy are finally moved in, official residents of Guncotton, as it were. But their new home is anything but perfect. Years of neglect have left it near in ruins, and with the high pressures of her new practice, Darcy will have to leave much of the work to Ash. Determined to not be a burden, Ash takes a plethora of chores onto her shoulders, possibly biting off more than she can chew in the process. Because, as she's exploring her new home ahead of the planned renovations, she stumbles across something that's been hidden away for a long time. Hidden, in fact, just where someone, or something, knew she would find it. I hope you'll join me next episode for Scars in Time, Chapter 7, The Typewriter. And until then, as always, stay safe out there. 
The West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. Original audio filmed on location in Sutton, West Virginia, and Louisville, Kentucky. Engineering and sound design by WSF Productions, LLC. Episode art by Yui Breedlove. All content herein copyright 2020, WSF Productions, LLC. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small-town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast due for release by Henlo Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.